It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, uh, and in this episode, we visit with Bridget Cook Birch. Uh, now, you you may hear that name, and if you're a longtime uh, listener to the Cultural Hall, you've heard that name referenced before. Back in episode 118, um, we visited with Michelle Moore with uh, Shattered Silence. Melissa Moore. Oh, Melissa Moore, you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her book, Shattered Silence. So I encourage you as we, t- uh, after you l- get done listening to this episode with Bridget, that you go back and listen to that episode. That's one of my favorite ones, actually. Talking about uh, her father? Yes, the that happy was a, serial killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little intense. It is a little intense. Um, but she's very open throughout the episode, and it's definitely one that you just, you kind of listen and come away from going, whoa. Uh, uh, an author, a speaker. Uh, I like on your website it says trainer, uh, and just multi-talented, multifaceted individual. Uh, Bridget Cook Birch, can I please just call you Bridget for the rest of the time? Absolutely, Perfect. please. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, upbringing. Let's start there. Okay. Well, I was adopted when I was six months old from some two extraordinary individuals that lived in Brigham City, Utah. Okay. And my mom is still up there and uh, uh, was born, well, not born, but raised Catholic and uh, in Brigham City, which was quite an extraordinary, you know, uh, experience. Brigham City, Utah, for people who don't know, is it's small town. And I would say probably, what, 80 percent, 90 percent Mormon? Yes, yeah. it's it's expanded a little bit now, but at the time it was more like ninety five percent Mormon. <laughs> like, there's the one Catholic girl Mormon. That's how that. Yeah, there was about three or four of us that were Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, you know, but not very many. Yeah, that's for sure. So, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say so, but I grew up with a lot of LDS friends, and and uh, never thought that I'd ever become LDS. How come? For sure. Well, honestly, I was kind of struck between two worlds. There was this part of me that wanted to become a nun, mm-hmm. like um, one of my uh, big mentors and role models was Mother Teresa, and I thought it would be beautiful to be able to go do mission work in different areas around the world for those less fortunate. Mm-hmm. And then there was this other part of me that wanted to get married and have kids and, and be spiritual and that kind of thing. And um most of the boys that I dated, if they were spiritual, they were studying to become priests mm-hmm. <laughs> or they were the foiled again, foiled again. Yes. <laughs> or they were the, um, you know, Christmas Easter kind of kind of guys. You sure. Know? And so there were a lot of LDS boys that were more spiritual on a day to day basis, which I really liked. But um, quite frankly, we were there were a lot of people that were prejudiced against us because we weren't LDS. Mm-hmm. And they were not very kind to my family in a lot of ways. And so I didn't I didn't grow up anti-Mormon to any degree, but I certainly didn't think that I would be one that would join. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of an interesting um, journey. That's for sure. And an unfortunate experience in some ways. I hate hearing those stories of how and and I know that I did it. I know that I did it and I wish I could go back and and undo it or. Um, but those stories where it's the the kid in the neighborhood who doesn't get invited to the birthday parties, or you can't go and play at that kid's house because they, you know, they don't believe the same way, or any number of just horrible, horrible stories of alienation. Ugh. Yeah. So when I was in 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 junior high, in particular, it was really painful. By the time I got into high school, I kind of developed my own tribe. Mm-hmm. So I had friends that were from all different walks of life. So the jocks and the you know, the geeks and the and the partiers mm-hmm. and the, the goody goodies. I had friends from all walks of life. And I just, I think it made me stronger. 
and it made me accept more people from all walks of life. So in its own way, it was actually a really good thing. Yeah. I think we it, it, it speaks to you and your character that uh, you could take an adversity and make it a strength, right? I, I wouldn't have told you that then, but, but I look back <laughs> yeah. now and say, yeah, I really did. Yeah. It's funny how we never, we never look at the... Those really hard trials and be like, cool, this is awesome. This is, I'm going to be so much stronger in this particular aspect later in my life. Yeah. Uh, so then post high school, is it so long, Brigham City, I am out of this little town? Oh, yeah. The moment I could. You bet. Came down to University of Utah, went down here for a little bit, partied too much. Mm-hmm. Ended up going up to Utah State University partied a little bit but not as much (laughs) not as much started to get more serious but I was working three jobs and going to school and just trying to prove myself over and over again and prove yourself to who or about what well prove myself to God I think and prove myself to myself I've always had more of a type a personality in certain aspects and I think that you know prove myself to my parents and to others that there was some worth involved there Mm -hmm. and and trying a little bit too hard so I got really ill Ended up in the hospital and listening to nurses outside in the corridor saying, yeah, she's not going to make it until morning. We better call her mom back in. All right. Hold on. It seems like we leapt from like, hey, I was trying to be an overachiever to now you're almost dead in the hospital. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. I had um, fissures and holes in my colon and, and some other things that were going on. And my whole abdomen was just filled with infection. So all due to lifestyle and choices and working too hard and just, you know, really running myself to the grave is, is really what I did. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating my own death and I, I just had this extraordinary experience where it was like recognizing that I had not fulfilled the measure of my creation, not one iota. And I was really sad. And the priest had come in and my mom had been saying all kinds of prayers. And I felt a little better, like if I lived or died, it would be okay. But mm-hmm. I was just really sad. And then I had this experience where the woman next to me, she'd had gallbladder surgery. And I didn't know her at all. But, you know, there's this curtain between us. But I felt her pain because her body wouldn't accept the medication. Mm. And then there was a bishop and her husband gave her a blessing. And her bishop commanded her body to accept the medication And all of a sudden, I felt her pain go away. She sighed and fell asleep. And I was like, whoa. So, you know, later on that night, you know, or early in the morning when I'm like, I'm dying. And and, uh, so I was, you know, it was kind of like that Mack truck moment of total (laughs) surrender. And I just, you know, I said to her, so can anyone have one of those blessings? And she's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I had one. and, And what I can tell you was it was extraordinary. And now I understand more about the power of blessings from all different walks of life and religions, but it was life-changing for me. And I was given a second chance at life. I actually had uh, a presence fill my room. And uh, I've talked about it at, you know, ions and other things, but just extraordinary where every cell in my body was just filled with unconditional love. And I'd, I'd had extraordinary parents, but I'd never felt like this intensity of love before. And he didn't care how much money I made, what year I was mm-hmm. in school, the mistakes that I'd made. He just loved me. So when I got done with that experience, you know, I, I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I, I knew two things. One was I was being given a second chance at life. And the second was that one of the antibiotics they were giving me was killing me. Like, mm. They were giving me six or seven different kinds in an intravenous, um, you know, subclavian is what they call it. And I could pick it out out of all of them. And I said, this one is killing me. 
And the nurse, of course, you know, she thought I was a taco shy of a combination plate. So yeah. she's like, <laughs> she just uh, pats you on the head. There, there, Bridget. She's like, there, there, you know. But I'm like, no, seriously, it's killing me. And luckily, the doctor believed in those kinds of experiences. So he said, well, it won't hurt to take her off this one. Mm-hmm. And then within 24 hours, I was out of the hospital. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And what what I've shared with my kids and what I share with other people is that. For the first time, I could look in the mirror and see love there. And the coolest, coolest thing was to be able to go out into the world in any society and to look into anyone's eyes and to see love there. So I was able to work with gang kids and, you know, the daughter of a serial killer and cultists and skinheads and and see love there. And it's I've just been on this really extraordinary journey. You know, it's fascinating you talk about... Um when you're contemplating death, that you feel like you haven't met the measure of who you are as an individual. Talk about that a little bit more. Well, I think there was just something within me. You know, I had been... Because it sounds like you were pretty busy, right? I mean, getting oh, your fair share busy. of partying and school and working. <laughs> and, I, right. and, and I think that that's true about a lot of us as we go, well, I'm busy. How could I not be doing what I'm to what be I'm doing, here what I'm for. here to do. I'm busy. Look, I don't even have a second. Right. I'm a half an hour late to an interview. Excuse <laughs> me. I'm just kidding. You. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, we, we feel that. So explain that for you, what you meant by that. Well, I can tell you this. There's a big difference between being busy or over busy and, you know, and being productive and passionate and purposeful. And so since that time, I've lived both worlds. I still have a tendency to get way too busy, Mm -hmm. but things are more directed towards my purpose and my passion. So I heard this quote from Mother Teresa once that I just love. And she said, I am the pen in the hand of a God who is writing a love letter to the world. Hmm. I thought, oh, that's me. Not Mother Teresa. Yeah. (laughs) Just the pen in the hand of a God writing that love letter. And you know, through words and through writing and through experiences and relating to people, I've been able to pass down some of that love that I received and also in words and stories be able to bring that out because those are the miracles, you know, the miracles that are inside of us that come out in stories. It's how we've learned from generation to generation. And I believe that those stories are the most powerful lessons that we can come to know. You know, they say that the two most important moments in any person's life is the moment they're born Mm -hmm. and the moment they discover why. And that's what I love to focus on is when people discover, oh, my heck, this is why I'm here. And then they get to live from that purpose. It's like the doors of heaven open, miracles unfold before them on a daily basis. And it's, it's lovely to behold. I see it all the time. I want to take a break for a second, and I want to come back, and I want you, uh, so you know where this is leading to, I'm going to ask you to share an experience or two where you feel like maybe you've met more of that measure, or you've inspired, or you've heard from others that have uh, kind of increased to that greater capacity of themselves. We'll take a break, and we'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Running a small business today can be difficult enough. Imagine all the work you have to do to market it. Imagine the hours you put in to create promotional materials for it. Now, imagine a partner that can help you with all of that and more. 
Imagine Lennon Design. Lennon Design is your partner in business when you need a professional look at a price you can afford. Whether it's websites, advertising media, promotional materials, and more, Lennon Design can help you promote your business. When you need creative, affordable designs, let it be. Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Time for the second block of the Cultural Hall, visiting with Bridget Cook-Birch. And uh, sometime we'll have to talk about the hyphenated name, I'm curious. But uh, not right now. I want to know about the uh, experiences where you, this whole transformation, this looking down the barrel of being dead... I mean, you know, you overhear people discussing your own, your own mortality. Uh, you get a second chance at life. So what are you doing with it? Well, one of the amazing things that I got to partake of is is my husband and I moved to Denver, Colorado. Now, were you married at the time that you found yourself in the hospital? And, no. Okay. I was single and then um, ended up joining the church and got married. How did that happen? Was it from that experience the, with the blessing that you ended up joining the church? <laughs> well, it was kind of like um, Brigham Young in some degree. It took me two years and six sets of missionaries. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, too, because like the last lingering question that I had, had to do with polygamy, okay, because it was something that, quite frankly, really bothered me. Sure, and I and you're not alone in for sure, right? And so, um, finally, I talked to the sister missionaries and worked through some of those issues, and then ended up being baptized. And so, um, fast forward a couple years later, and find myself in Denver, and I had the opportunity to work for community learning centers, and they had several of these transition houses for um, young men in particular, a, a few young women that were high-risk youth, gang youth, and uh, worked with them. And, and these were some of the kids that, you know, I mean, mom and dad are gang members, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, and they just didn't know any other way of living. Mm-hmm. And so to see them when a mentor would show them that, no, you don't have to go do that drug deal and you can make other choices and this light that would come on in their eyes that I recognize mm-hmm. where they were like, oh, my gosh, I'm the captain of my own soul. And they would start to make different choices and be examples to their family and their friends. And sometimes they'd have to leave their family and friends, but they would they would take that on, you know, that intrinsic level of their creation. And and it inspired me. I fell in love with the human soul. Hmm. So after Columbine, we had the opportunity to move back to the Columbine shootings in Mm -hmm. Colorado, April 20th of 1999. I think it's 99. Yeah. And we knew that in 2000, we'd have the opportunity to move back to Utah. And I wanted to bring back some of the openness, the redemption, the forgiveness that I had seen and learned from these kids. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to write a story about, you know, this gang kid who walks away from his gang and, and, you know, goes through this redemption process and, and really can do incredible things. And so um, I was working on the story for about six months, and suddenly one night in the middle of the night, I had the entire story. Character scenes, plots, even eye color. Hmm. Like, I had the makings of the most incredible novel. So <laughs> I tell my audiences, I was doing, like, the happy dance, you know, <laughs> because I'm like, bestseller. I'm yeah. just so excited because it was such an incredible story. And husband was like, what? Was there a noise? What? What's going on? Are we okay? Is everything all right? Exactly. You're like, go to bed. Go I got this. Sleep, I got honey. this. And then I ran downstairs, and I wrote for, like, like eight hours straight. Oh my gosh. Two in the morning till 10 and got it all out on paper. And then, but it floored me because I worked with 
Nuestra Familia and Bloods and Crips and, you know, these. And there were white kids that were in trouble, of course, but Mm -hmm. none of the ones that I had worked with had ever been involved in white supremacy. But in my dream, it was this like fully fledged neo-Nazi skinhead kid. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do some research on it. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of research and I was really floored because the kids I worked with were about drugs and guns and girls and machismo, you know, being being the toughest. Mm -hmm. But skinheads, neo-Nazi skinhead movement was all about hatred and they really believed Hitler's edicts. And Mm -hmm. if you were not white and healthy, then you should be euthanized and sterilized and completely wiped off the planet. I was just floored. So I was doing some more research and I come across this guy's website and I... I didn't know what to do. I mean, everything that he had written about in his biography and everything that I had written about in my fictional novel mm-hmm. were in tandem. So the hero of my story was real. <laughs> and at the end of that, he says, oh, and by the way, I recently converted to a new church. If you want to hear about this, click on this. And I thought, <laughs> if this guy's LDS, I'll just die. <laughs> and sure enough, the really? missionaries had reached him. And then at the end of that page, which wasn't one part of his regular pages, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm looking for someone to write my life story. Oh, my gosh. If you know of someone, have them give me a call. And I'm like, do, 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 you know. Strictly coincidence, right? Yes, strictly Weak. coincidence. <laughs> so then I contacted him and, and he already had a writer from Newsweek. And I'm like, OK. And then I said one thing that I couldn't believe I would say, but I was like, I wanted to honor him. And I said, well, I'm not going to publish this story because it's yours and you're real. And he said, thank you. What I didn't know at the time is that someone had written a movie about his life, American History X, okay. based 95% upon his life, and no one had ever given him credit for it. Hmm. And so when I said, I won't publish this, then when his writer flaked out, he said, would you write my story? And I'm oh, like, wow. heck yeah. So we wrote a book that has, gosh, it's gotten um, several hundred kids out of gangs and even adults out of gangs in prison. It's been a really life-changing book for a lot of people. And it was designed for police and military and um, colleges and universities. You know, it's raw. It also contains his, um, you know, his conversion story. Mm. But it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then Melissa, who you met, she read that story. And she said, she contacted me and she said, I think if someone could create a story of hope and healing, I think, you know, out of so much darkness, it could be you. And then she said, I'm the daughter of the happy face serial killer. Would you write my life story? Mm-hmm. I was floored. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get on my knees and I, I just, you know, turned my face up to God. And I said, how do you write a story of hope and healing about a serial killer's daughter? Yeah. But as you know, she is very inspiring. And so to write that story without all the salacious details, it wasn't necessary. We wrote her emotional story, Mm -hmm. what it was like to grow up in that situation. And the whole process of it, quite frankly, for me, was very life transforming. You know, writing TJ's book was transformational because it made me, I had to look at the darkest parts of myself and humanity that I'd never dared look at before. And then for Melissa's story, the same thing, but even some deeper elements of that, you know, sexual trauma and murder. And that was tough. But she also was a convert to the church. And there were some spiritual things where she had learned to listen to that guidance. Mm -hmm. And she also learned that she didn't have to be like her mom and she didn't have to be like her dad, that she herself, too, was the captain of her own soul and that she could be this incredible light to others. And to me, that was extraordinary because I'd seen so many kids of serial killers and other, you know, um, people who had committed heinous crimes. And they usually 
self-medicate or they just take themselves out of the picture completely. And she chose a totally different path. And it was just amazing. So it set me on my road to be, I think, a better journalist, a better book writer, a better mom, a better member of society, better member of my church, and, and just a better person overall. It was very transformational. So you talk about, you made reference to it a couple of times, the captain of your own ship. And I think that there were probably people that are listening to this that are like, yeah, I know, I get it. But for whatever reason, lack the knowledge, like, like I can hear it and cognitively go, yeah, I'm in charge of me. Mm-hmm. And then when I go to try and be in charge of me, I fail miserably at being in charge of me. You know what I'm saying? What, oh, what, yeah. Talk about how we can enable that. You know, I'm like first lieutenant in my own ship. There's somebody else captaining this thing, right? But I'm talk about that for a minute. Well, I think um, for me, there's a spiritual aspect to recognize that, um, you know, that there's a bigger power than us mm-hmm. that's that's over this whole creation. But that just like any of us that are parents, we recognize that we want the very best for our kids. Mm-hmm. And so that free will and choice is such a huge thing. But I also have seen the second aspect of that, which is we are a product of our culture, our belief systems, every friend we've ever had, every mentor, every advisor, parents and teachers. And we grow to have beliefs about ourselves a lot of times, which are very limiting. Mm -hmm. And we're our own worst critics and we have a tendency to see the least of ourselves. You know, when Christ talks about the least of these, I think it's most often ourselves. Right. And it shows up in our behaviors, our thoughts, our feelings, and eventually, you know, our lifestyle. And so when we get in touch with the choices that we really have to live a passion and purpose-filled life, then we start to take a look at, okay, what beliefs do I have that are no longer serving me? And, you know, what, what uplifts my life and enriches it and what tears me down and what makes it heavy? And to take a look at that and say, you know, there's nobody else but me forcing myself to, you know, carry on with life with any of these, what am I going to choose to do now? And so I think that's when people show up as leaders and things happen. Like my last book, um, The Witness War Red, was about the 19th wife of 65 women. She grew up here. I know. Uh, She grew up in the FLDS right here in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a a student of Warren Jeffs, and then she became his uh, mother-in-law. Because she married his father when she just barely turned 19 and he was almost 86 years of age. So here she is married to the prophet of the FLDS church. And when he died, Warren tried to force her to marry. And at that point, she had had enough of being violated in the name of God. And she decided that she was going to escape. So long dresses, long skirts, long underwear and everything. She slipped past, you know, security gates and fences and everything else and onto a brand new life. And, um... Since that time, you know, she tried to create this life outside of the FLDS on the Oregon coast, but she had three little sisters and one had already been forced at age 14 to marry their first cousin who she didn't love. Mm. And he beat her and, and was very, you know, traumatizing to her and her little tiny sisters. Warren had his eye on one of them. She knew. And then all of a sudden, poof, they disappeared. Mm. Those two and her mom. And so... um she knew from the media that there was a temple being built in El Dorado, Texas. And even though she'd always been taught to fear law enforcement, she called down there and started this tentative relationship with law enforcement. And uh, when the raid happened, she didn't have anything to do with the raid. But, you know, the, the sheriff called her and he's like, 
I have visibly pregnant 12, 13, and 14-year-old girls, and they're telling me that they've not had sex. And mm. she says, oh, that's because you're using a bad outside word. Mm-hmm. She says, ask them if they've had marital relations. And he's like, what's the difference? And she said, just ask. So then he would turn to them, are you having marital relations with your husband? Oh, of course. <laughs> so he yeah. calls her back up. Would you get down here? Yeah. So she came down as the advocate for her own people and also for law enforcement and try to be the bridge. And then... Mm. Um, Here's the poignant part. She ended up being the only civilian that stepped into that temple. Mm. And she saw firsthand what Warren had been doing to these little girls in the name of God behind the closed doors of the temple. And she said, you know, nobody stood up for me when I was forced to be married because she didn't want to marry Rulin. Mm -hmm. And she said, someone has to be the face of the faceless and the voice of the voiceless. And so she stood up to testify. She's testified over 20 times. Uh, for and on behalf of these young girls. And she was one, another one that just completely changed my life. For one thing, she's an exquisitely wonderful person and a creature. A lot of people have called her an angel because she's just a very generous of spirit lady. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is I realized the power of one person. She went up against everything she'd ever been taught and raised when she knew that it was wrong. And, um, we had done some discovery and realized that there was more slaves today than at any other time in human history. And Warren Jeffs had been participating in that because he created slaves, sex trafficking out of these little girls. Cause mm. it'd be like, Oh, two for me and one for you. If you're a loyal follower, five for me and three for you, you know, yeah. he was marrying these tiny girls off to these old men. And, um, and when I realized that and learned that it was like, this is right in my own backyard. Yeah. And and this is happening around the world. And I remember being a kid. Do you remember being a kid and learning about slavery and other things and going, I just remember going, if there was any time that I could make a difference, you know, in Nazi Germany, when the Jews were being eradicated or, you know, in America, when the slaves and, and people having to hide them and, and do things with their lives. And I thought, I live in a different time, but surely I can stand up. Yeah. And that's when I, I joined with several other women, um, business women in Salt Lake City, and we formed SheRoseUnited.org, a nonprofit. And one of our things is, you know, eradicating domestic violence and abolishing human trafficking. And then we're also about supporting our women warriors. And that has been a really extraordinary uh, organization to be involved in. And remember I told you I wanted to go do mission work in the world? Mm-hmm. I just got back from India. Cool. And we got to do humanitarian service up in the mountains in the Himalayas. And we reached women and children that no government and no NGO had ever hiked up in the hills to reach before. Wow. And that was it was really beautiful to relate to those women and children and men, to let them know that we are the same as them, you know, that we're all one and that we love and care about them and to bring them a measure of hope and joy. And honestly, they taught us as much as we taught them. And it was, a, you know, exquisite experience. And now we're being asked to do some things in the Congo. Cool. Because it's the rape capital of the world. Not as cool. Not as cool. Yeah. But what we have the ability to do is very cool, is to shift and change an entire culture in this unhealthy belief. Like, not going in as the ignorant Westerners, like, oh, we know better than your whole culture, because that's not the case. They have a rich and beautiful culture in many ways. But the last several years, you know, a leader came to us and he said, my country 
is at war and it's at war with women and the weapon is rape. Hmm. And he said, would you help us? And we said, yes. So that's what we're off to next. (laughs) A few things in in what you were saying that kind of came to my mind, so maybe we can sort of circle back around. Um, one, you talked about looking at the the positive, and uh, and then looking at the negative, and then just uh, kind of extricating the the negative things. Mm-hmm. Is it your you know you talk about uh, how you speak and train and everything like that? Is the, is that the actual exercise? That if someone feels like they're kind of trapped in whatever, I mean, it can be kind of whatever their circumstances are, like that you would you would recommend, hey, sit down and like write it out. Like here's these things that are the negative things, or is it more figurative and in what you're saying? Well, one thing I've noticed is that there's no right or wrong way to go about it. Right. And um, it's just that there's things that work and things that don't work as well. Mm-hmm. And people Give me say, the things that work well. I don't want to work. I don't <laughs> right. want to spend my time with the things that don't work as well. Exactly. Exactly. So people could spend years and decades in therapy, but I have found when someone writes their story or is able to express it in words, like when I interview them, um, in both capacities that writing to heal actually heals them to hmm. be able to move forward in their lives. So there's something about having to write down and face emotions that a lot of times we push down and haven't allowed ourselves to really feel and to let those emotions move through us and to experience it. And then it no longer has any power over us. And we're able to see, like we were talking about earlier, wow, these are some of the lessons that I learned from that. Mm -hmm. And as much as I would never want to relive that again, now I can take these experiences and extricate the essence of the the situations that sculpted my character and sculpted my soul to this degree. And now I'm stronger because of it. And they see those things and they're, you know, they like when we push it down, it's part of our bad, sick and wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. When we write it out and can face it, then we go, oh, that happened to me. And also I made these choices and then I made choices stemming from that. But that was my circumstances and my situation. That is not who I am. Mm-hmm. And when we realize that our past is not who we are, then there's suddenly great power to create a brand new future and not relegated on who we were in the past, but who we get to be. Right. And so it, it helps to distill, you know, the very essence of who we are. And then usually, you know, there's there's speakers that talk about this, but oftentimes your mess is your message mm-hmm. because whatever you've been through and been able to survive and move past, you're the expert in it now. Yeah. You know, there is <laughs> no one who knows that experience that you had more than you. Exactly. And then you're able to turn around and assist others. So cut their learning curve, make it so that they're not miserable for 20 years, that they recognize that they have power and choice and other things. And and people do when when um, my uh, people that I work with become authors, you should see the doors that open in their lives. Mm. And it's simply because they've made peace with their past. And now they're using it as a stepping stone to open doors into much greater things. And it's it's beautiful to watch. Yeah. And difficult to do, <laughs> it seems, <laughs> as I'm sitting here thinking, because I, I think that it, it, everyone on some level relates, uh, even the most empowered and, you know, world-changing person certainly can can look at their their past or or who they are and get sort of swept up in it and as you're speaking i'm thinking of myself and i'm like well you, yeah but you know <laughs> this this is so difficult for where i'm at and, and and but it really is just this 
this ownership of choice and this, you know, who I was is not who I am nor who I could be. Exactly. Or who I could be. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes we're for a little while stuck in the middle of, okay, this is who I am and it is what it is. Yeah. But owning that and then recognizing that we can make a different choice from here on out is really empowering. Yeah. I wish it were just as <laughs> that easy, though, sometimes. It's sometimes that, do you feel like that? It, yes. Okay. Okay, so I'm not alone. <laughs> no. Because you've done a, a really amazing things, and people who are listening are like, geez, man, how amazing is this woman? But, but uh, you know, I think it is. It's the human condition to just sometimes get caught in that. Oh, this is where I'm at. All of us do oh. it. All of us do it. I think I'm just, I've just been blessed to be in a situation where I have eyes to see. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest with you, it's easier for me to see that in other people's stories than my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm learning to apply those lessons to myself, too. Like last year, um, I went through kind of a, a difficult journey where uh, so we had this extraordinary thing happen. The Parliament of the World's Religions came here. Mm-hmm. So there's like 80 different religions represented in, in several, like over 100 countries, if I remember correctly. And it was extraordinary. And our Shiro's and Shiro's Heroes got to perform with Marianne Williamson and Mother Tawari up on these stages in front of like ten to 13,000 people. Yes. And it was just, it was beautiful. Um, and so there I am, and I got to teach in the Red Tent and, and teach women. What does that mean? It was a special place for women okay. to be able to come and, and discuss things okay. that were facing women. And that was that was amazing because women from all these different religions. I'm glad I asked because teaching in the red tent, I, it sounded like slang for something that I was like, that, that's got to mean something. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really beautiful. And then two weeks later, um, I, I was in so much pain. I was lying in bed and I couldn't even move. Uh. I couldn't get out of bed or anything. And I come down with this condition. And it was really interesting too, Richie, because I, I have recognized that oftentimes our illnesses have a, a physiological, you know, um, origin that actually stems from our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I had to get clear with what thoughts had created this. And I had a lot of um, voices in my head, you know, former business partner, former husband, you know, some of these things. But when I released all of those, wrote those out, you know, had little discussions with myself, it was my own ego mind that was the meanest because hmm. I, I knew that I had an opportunity to go to India and do an inspired writer's retreat there. I knew that we could do humanitarian service there and that I could speak internationally on a stage at the Women's Economic Forum. And there was this ugly, mean voice inside of me that says, who the hell do you think you are Right. that you could do this, right? I've heard that voice before. Yeah. And so I, I had to get, I had to come to a place where I didn't just dismiss it because it would just come back stronger and be yelling at me. Mm-hmm. I finally had to sit down and have a discussion with it and write about it and then treat it with respect because learning that it was trying to protect me, that, hmm. you know... You go out there, who's going to protect you on this world stage? Who's going to protect you in the mountains of India, you know? And, but it was a long process and it kept me stuck for a while. So I had this vision at the beginning of the year. I got to do some really beautiful spiritual processes. And I had in this meditation, a visualization of like this mist. And I, and all of a sudden I'm coming out of the mist and I'm riding an elephant and I'm okay. like, oh, wow. You know, and it was really powerful. 
And then I found out that we were going to have the opportunity to ride elephants sure. in the jungle and to look for tigers and to do some of these things. And that was when I said, you know what, I'm bigger than this pain. I'm bigger than this illness. I'm bigger than my ego mind. I just have to believe in myself. And some days it was one minute at a time. Yeah. And so to be able to create it has been extraordinary. Like I've come back and people are like, you're radiant. And it's because I proved to myself that I could do it. And six months ago, I was lying in bed, not knowing if I could do it. So it was um, a really lovely thing to be able to say, yes, I am capable. Because I see that so often in other people, not always inside of myself. And I think when we talk about fulfilling the measure of our creation, when we really get down to it, it's to be able to see ourselves through God's eyes and to recognize that we are pure potentiality. Yeah. And that's how he's designed us to be. But we've got to accept it and then live as creators of our own existence, you know, and work in partnership and collaboration with other people to create miracles. Uh, I want to take a break again. And we'll come back in the third block of the cultural hall. And we'll talk about uh, some other things that you kind of have upcoming. Okay. Uh, I want to make sure that we give full service to the names of the books that people can check out that you've worked on. Uh, and uh, who knows what else? We'll see where it goes. Uh, we'll come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. Consumer alert! Consumer alert! Are you suffering from excruciating headaches? Are you having a hard time sleeping no matter what you do? That old small computer screen from years ago could be your problem, exposing you to a huge amount of radiation and eye strain leading to headaches and loss of sleep. Screens are something a lot of people overlook because they really don't break a lot, so they keep them for years. At PC Laptops, we only carry screens that we've tested on our own eyeballs. Right now, purchase any PC Laptops desktop and get a free monitor size upgrade. That's right. Buy a 24-inch, get an upgrade to 27 inches for free. We have brand new PC Laptops desktop computers from only $7.99 and they're covered forever with a lifetime warranty. That's right. $7.99 covered forever. So run into any PC Laptops location right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we love you. All right, it's time for the third block of the Cultural Hall. Uh, before I forget, uh, you are an amazing woman. Let me say that out loud. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I love hearing your story and the, and the making of the choices and all this stuff. As a woman within the church, talk about the strides that you feel like the church is making for women and what we need to do. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think that there's two parts to that. Okay. I think that there's there's um, there are some big strides that have been made. Like one of the major things that I've been so happy to see is the church being more open about um, societal issues and also about polygamy. Like on the church website itself, for the first time, just in the last two years, they've actually come to address polygamy. Yeah. And not just... Um, the storytelling side of it, but the reality side of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a beautiful thing because it's it's something that has only been addressed in polite circles in certain ways right. and not really gotten to the heart of the issue. And, um, and I think between people, you know, uh, wanting to have compassion for Emma, wanting to know the full story behind some of that and just the human elements again, mm-hmm. that uh, that there's been a lot of broader discussion. And I'm so proud of the church for, okay, we're just going to be open and authentic and raw and real. Because to me, 
that transparency is where the real power comes from. Yep. Anytime a religious organization seeks to cover something up is when there's um, it trespasses on humanity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always really happy when I see any church. You know, the Catholic Church has been doing a lot more transparency. There's a lot of different churches that are doing that. And to see the LDS Church do that, I know they're coming into a new era of power and being able to relate to their members, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of struggles, as you're well aware of, and there's a, there's women in Utah and women outside of Utah that don't feel heard. I can tell feel you that heard, heard, heard. yes, okay. um, that in studying so many different religions, I've seen that there is a, um, a major patriarchal edge to most um, major religions in the world. And, you know, having witnessed firsthand a lot of things in Islam um, and in other, you know, patriarchal religions, women in the LDS church are actually held in a lot of reverence and respect. Mm -hmm. They have many more rights than most women around the world. They also have a lot of deference and respect from leaders and also from their husbands and their fathers Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, There are some areas where that has been a long time coming. There are some areas that are still moving kind of slow. And um, and to be honest with you, like, okay, so obviously I tell it like it is, right? Yeah. And I'm no, gonna... I've been, I've known you to <laughs> beat around the bush and not get to the, oh wait, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, which talk... I think is refreshing raw and, and it makes it so I know what you're talking about. So we can, we can gather around the thing that you're saying. Anyway, go ahead. And be on the same page. Yeah. So um, there are some things uh, for women in the church. So women around the world are seeking to heal because many of them are, you know, sexually abused. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them um, grow up with that kind of uh, dark mark on their soul and they struggle with it until they're able to work through it and release it. And the church has not provided a way for women or men to be able to openly deal with um, uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse. And it's something that I'm beginning to see some shifts in the way that um, that's handled just in an individual ward basis. So it's obviously coming down um, through uh, the church hierarchy. But I honestly feel that it needs to be addressed in a more powerful way mm-hmm. because there's two links to the chain. And so there's the women and there's the men. And I'm not going to call them victims and predators because it's not how it goes. Mm -hmm. And usually anyone who's ever been a predator has usually been a victim themselves. And so men and women are victims. Um, It's just more often that that it's it's more often women. And then the cycle continues and continues. And so what needs to happen is a um, a really strong level of transparency where leaders say, you know what? We have a problem. We have an issue. And so we're going to work together mm-hmm. to create, you know, a healing process. And to, and some of it just is in in being able to talk about it and it no longer being a taboo discussion. And I think that um, the things that have happened with um, uh, gender and, you know, with with um, gays and and lesbian rights and things like that have they made a discussion uh how shall I say this? They made it impossible not to have a discussion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on both sides. And so now, finally, all of this is coming out and there's been, you know, so much pain and so many suicides and so many issues and that kind of thing. But we're finally getting to this. 
okay, now we're going to be transparent. We're going to be real. We're going to be raw. We're going to have real discussions with people, not make it taboo and not make people bad, sick and wrong. Hmm. And that's what we need to do with these issues that have affected women for so long. Um, because we're going to make our sons and our daughters stronger. And that's where um, a lot of things, that's where the culture and the religion and the power will shift into a more healthy dynamic, in my opinion. You know, in some ways, uh, like there's just been no discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and And so people are like, well, why isn't the church different about it? And it's like, well, we didn't start talking about it. And they're... There has to be that time from a beginning of discussion. I mean, things move slowly. It's unfortunate, especially if you want the change really bad. Mm-hmm. It it feels like things are glacially slow. Yes, uh, but I think um, I think you have to you look you look at it and go. Well, there is change. There is progress. There is, but it, you know, it becomes kind of consuming in some in some cases to see that change isn't happening fast enough. Right. And you get discouraged and then you, <laughs> who is this? What is this church? And we, you know, we get into some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier. But I think that's too, when we can take personal accountability and we can have conversations with our own friends, conversations with our family, mm-hmm. teach our own sons and daughters, you know, true respect for both sexes, you know, cause I've seen the pendulum swing too, where sometimes I've seen girls go or women go the other way. And they start to disrespect the male. Sure. And, you know, that's equally as unhealthy. And so to be able to teach a healthy respect. Well, it's their turn. The gifts are, <laughs> well, no. They, they no. might feel that way, but then all it's going to do is create more, go, yeah, more, more combativeness and mm-hmm. issues. So, um, Let's mention, uh, just because I don't know where the rest of this is going to go, since we kind of ad-lib it. Let's, uh, the names of the books that you have that are out there that people can read more. Okay. So, uh, Skinhead Confessions from Hate to Hope with T.J. Leiden and Shattered Silence, The Untold Story of a Serial Killer's Daughter with Melissa G. Moore. And then The Witness War Red, The 19th Wife Who Brought Polygamous Cult Leaders to Justice. That one was with Rebecca Musser. Then I also have two anthologies where I actually wrote a little bit about my own story. So the first one of those was with uh, Lisa Nichols from The Secret. Okay. And um, it's called uh, Living Proof, Celebrating the Gifts That Came Wrapped in Sandpaper. Okay. And I wrote about my near-death experience in that. And then the second one is called Leading Women, and it's where 20 of us came together to discuss the secrets of life and success and love and uh, but only for women. Cool. <laughs> well, it's interesting. When does the sequel "Leading Men" come out? Aww. Sounds like this sounds like maybe that could be your passion there, and your purpose. There we Richie. go. <laughs> uh, so then, what's out there still? You're obviously one who has. Hey, look, those are you know it's thirty irons in that fire. So, is there another book project coming up? Yes, there's a couple. Okay, see, <laughs> I knew you did know. You did know. So um, I'm, I'm coming to completion on two books. One, um, both of these individuals are from Utah. So one of them is a former AUB member. Uh, the is, is uh, Apostolic United Brethren. Yeah, so polygamist. So, mm-hmm. so as a gentleman, he has. He was the 19th kid of 34 children. <sighs> He was um, from his father's five wives. Um, he grew up with the expectation that he had to have three wives in order for him to um, even to be able to, you know, be in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And he went from that to actually um, 
had some really intensive spiritual experiences, um, hard ones too, including losing his toddler son. Mm. But he's come to a knowledge and uh, a reverence for divine feminine to where he's walked away from polygamy and now he just absolutely, you know, embraces the feminine inside of him. He's not gay, but he just embraces the feminine in in spirituality and within himself and then also in the world. And so he's very respectful of women. He's actually one of our Shiro's heroes. Oh, really? Yeah. And, what is awesome. it, and what's that book called? It's called Dying to Live. Dying to Live. Yes. Okay. Because he came from a culture where most of them are dying in this life so that they can live in the life to come. Okay. And so, um, very powerful man. That sounds fascinating. It is definitely fascinating. And then the second one is called Angel in Arlington, and it's a woman from Provo. Her father was murdered aboard a naval vessel when she was just two and a half. And she grew up um, with a lot of PTSD and not trusting and being just really afraid of her own shadow. And this is a journey of how she came to face her father's uh, killer. And also um, come head to head with the U.S. Navy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So and these are all 100% true. 100% true. Wow. Yeah. You ever want to write a comedy? I mean, does it ever get... <laughs> do, you ever, do, you want to, do you ever want to write just like, do you have a joke where you're like, and fictionally, I'm going to write a, the, <laughs> the story and tale... I don't know. I, yeah. Um, one of my friends, Josh Harnigan, he's he's a, a librarian here at Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. and uh, he has Tourette's, and he's just overcome so much, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote to his sweetheart on 10 minutes a day on his cell phone. It took him a year, but he wrote an entire novel. And I'm wow. like, if he can do that on his cell phone, surely, you know. So I quit doing, like, Sudoku at night mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to get my brain to stop, and I started writing a fictional novel, but... I'll have to tell you that next time. Oh, tease me a little bit. Can you tease me a teeny, teeny bit? Mm, can I swear? No. It's it's about a Japanese superhero, but she's a super shiro. Oh, cool. So it's going to be fun. Okay. It's a, it's a young adult and um, very adventurous and superpowers and That's awesome. Ushido meditations and all kinds of stuff. It's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I asked that then. <laughs> um, what else? Obviously, there's, I mean... We have by no means touched your life really in this time that we've had, but is there something that either uh, a message that you share that you don't feel like you've fully shared here with us, um, something about you that makes you that you haven't taken the opportunity to share with us, something that I'm missing, that I'm going to walk away from going, Bridget didn't didn't tell me that. Why didn't she tell me that? Well, this is a little more vulnerable because I'm obviously about, I I become my co-author's biggest fans, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm used to um, being a huge support to other people, but I've also learned that I have a voice and I have a strong message. And so when I, when I got to teach in that red tent that I was telling you about at the parliament, mm-hmm. I had women from all these different backgrounds and walks of life. And um, I was taking them through the chakra system. Okay. And, uh, and then I was talking to them about, I was on the seventh chakra, which you may or may not be familiar with, but it's just a... It's a um, system of health that's been taught through many different cultures throughout the world. And so, um, but I was teaching them about the seventh chakra, which is connection to God, to their creator and all, whatever form that is for them. And I talked to them about that the temple of Solomon, you know, in the Bible, it was such a great and amazing temple that it was said to, ha- to house the actual presence of God. Hmm. 
and it was just it was so great and mighty and when it was destroyed ever since then there you know could only be like a lesser temple that could not house the actual presence of God it could only house Shekinah which was the breath of God so mm-hmm. very powerful but not the actual presence mm-hmm. So I turned to these women from all these different countries and religions and backgrounds and walks of life. And I said, you know, I pointed to myself, but I said, how many of you feel like this temple has been violated or desecrated to the point that you don't feel worthy of the actual presence of God? And almost every hand went up in the room. Hmm. And I feel like that's when I really discovered my Dharma, my life purpose, which was... I learned that I am worthy of the actual presence of God, even when I make mistakes, even when something's happened to me. And I feel like part of what I get to do moving forward is to have experiential learning processes for women to discover and explore the fact that they are worthy of a great and miraculous and glorious and beautiful life. And so I developed a program. I'm actually going to have a live event here in Salt Lake City in September. And it's called The Feisty Goddess, <laughs> which I didn't think Utah was ready for, but I'm hearing no, we're from we- all we're ready. quarters that men and women are ready for women to embrace every aspect of themselves. And so I call it goddess because I see it in certain women that hold themselves in this regard and they're able to work miracles. And so we're just going to go through um, four or five levels of goddess from asleep to fully enlightened. <laughs> And in these seven different power areas of life. And we're going to love and nurture each other. And it's not weird at all because I love woo, but I don't like like, you know, it's it's about empowerment. So it's called the feisty goddess hip wisdom for high spirited leaders. (laughs) And it is going to be fun. That (laughs) sounds great. You talked about the humor. Well, that's where the humor and the joy and the love and the it's just all going to come out. Where can can people learn more about that? At the feisty dot com. Nice. Good. I'm glad you got the website because <laughs> it'll be nice. The feisty goddess.com. Yes. Uh, and they can find out more about me and about my books at Bridget inspires.com. So the, um, no, I won't ask that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this. Uh, we ask three questions to, uh, to everyone who steps into the cultural hall. Um, the first one is, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? And I don't have a calling right now. Okay, Uh, I'm used to having five callings at a time or three callings at a time. At this moment, I do not have a calling. Uh, If you could pick a calling for yourself, one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Mm. That would be tough. I would just say the two favorite ones that I've ever had were Young Women's President. Yeah. And the other would be um, a Sunday school teacher. Absolutely dig both of those. Yeah. Yeah. the final question that we ask everyone who steps in here, interpret it however you will. What is your favorite part of your faith? Mm. Honestly, my favorite part of my faith is testimony meeting. Because it's where the power of words and the power of emotion in the heart comes to play. And being able to share that with others, you know... Um, It was one of the things, like when I would go to church, uh, I I moved away from Utah Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that I'd be away from the Mormon culture to decide if I was going to become a Mormon. And in South Carolina, when I would walk into the chapel and little children and 90-year-old men and women 
you know, were bearing their testimonies, I could feel the spirit of that so strong. And it has something, it is something that has absolutely stayed with me. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of what I do on a daily life, in daily life. And I just, I feel like the power of words and us expressing our devotion to God and our gratitude, Mm -hmm. those two things, praise and gratitude. If we focused 90% of our lives on praise and gratitude, I'll tell you what, the hard stuff wouldn't be so hard anymore. Hmm. All right, I'll try it. <laughs> I'll All let right you then. know if that's the truth. I would love that. Uh, I'm ready for your feedback. We'll, um, we'll do a scientific experiment. Done. Okay. 90%. I can do that. Let me ask you this. Uh, if people have uh, questions or they want to book you or they want to get in touch with you, how would you best recommend that they do that? Um, finding me on Facebook is uh, fairly easy to do. Okay. Uh, I'm Bridget Cook or Bridget Cook Birch the second because <laughs> yeah. I had to have two. Um and then uh, also BridgetInspires.com. There's a place to get in touch with me there. So I would love to hear from you. Um, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body and that if you weren't healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really got to go on the Cultural Hall show.